Hello, fellow time travelers. I am Sasha from the Fiction Paradox Podcast. And I am Skip from the Fiction Paradox Podcast. And I'm Brooke. We're the Fiction Paradox, the only podcast dedicated to the BBC Books 8th Doctor Adventures in the whole world that we know of. You're listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast. Enjoy, Enjoy your, your travels. Your travels. <laughs> <laughs> get a flash of a memory of a movie you saw as a child but can't remember the name? Perhaps you caught it on TV while staying up later than you should have. Or maybe you never saw it, but you recognize the cover art from the neighborhood video store around the block. At the Video Junkyard Podcast, we dig up these forgotten films and franchises and see if they still hold up in the digital age. You know, one person's trash is another's treasure, something like that. Each episode, hosts Eric Gilbranson and Joe Peterson discuss a number of films selected thematically. We'll be looking at the best, the worst, and the best of the worst at the Video Junkyard Junkyard Podcast. You are listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast. Happy listening. Hello, I am Larry Van Mersbergen, the host of the Doctor Who Collectors Podcast. Now that you're reading the Doctor Who Target books in story order and enjoying the thorough discussion of them, maybe you'd like to collect them or even collect the hardcover editions or maybe the Pinnacle American Editions. For all things in the world of Doctor Who merchandise, from books to the Dalek weather vanes and Dalek cufflinks to the really unusual. Tune in to the Doctor Who Collectors Podcast, available on Apple Podcasts and Podbean. You are listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast. Enjoy your travels. Hello, fellow time travelers. I'm Ian McNeese. Yes, I played Winston Churchill in The Victory of the Daleks in Doctor Who, and you are listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club podcast. Enjoy your travels. I know I will. Bye now. Fellow time travelers, and welcome back to the Doctor Who Target Book Club, the podcast in which we undertake the deadly task of discussing in story order all the Doctor Who novelizations. My name is Tony Whit, and today we have an equally deadly three-person discussion panel, including our so-called expert who's been a Who fan since 1979. That would be me. There's our intermediate-level casual fan who's seen several episodes but has not previously read any of the books until these podcasts, and this time it's the worthy Dalton Hughes. Hello, Dalton. Hello. And finally, there's our semi-novice fan, one who has seen little to none of the original series and has not previously read any of the books except for the ones we've done for this podcast, and this time around, it's the wise and witty Alison Fitch Seyfried. Hello, Alison. Good evening. Like one of the characters in our story, I give you a wintry smile. A wintry <laughs> smile. Yes, I love that line. I will apologize to our listeners ahead of time. It is my birthday weekend, Happy and birthday. I have started celebrating early, thank you, and so I am just a little bit tipsy, so if my delivery seems a little more fluid than usual, it's because I have more than the usual amount of fluid in me, ha <laughs> ha, oh god. 
So, yes, if you like what you're hearing, and I somehow doubt that, please check our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash DWTargetBC. Depending on the amount you give per month, you receive, among other possible goodies, face masks, mugs, and t-shirts with our logos on them. Just like giving to PBS, but unlike them, they don't buy alcohol, whereas I do. But not a Target book. Since we know you have so many of those, you store them in a matrix containing the brain patterns of all of your dead relatives. Just to say thank you for being willing to help us stay on the virtual air. And as usual, we'd like to thank our regular patrons, Bart Lammy, Rick Taylor, Toby Bengelsdorf, Jay Barry, the Video Junkyard Podcast, the Doctor Who Collectors Podcast, Hans Wax, Stephen Pickering, James Sumnall, Dave Davis, Guy Lambert, and Simon Painter. Thank you all. Thank you. Thank you. What a list. I can no longer do that in one breath. Nope. I wouldn't even be able to do that in one breath if I were fully sober. <laughs> We also have our Goodreads discussion group where you, the listener, can discuss upcoming books and previous podcasts. You can find us there at <gasps> tinyurl.com forward slash Y7KMASPR. In fact, we expect you to. We continue now with the third story of Tom Baker's third season with Terrence Dick's novelization of The Deadly Assassin. Because really, what other kind is there? <laughs> Ineffective, I guess. Not very good assassin. I guess not. Without further ado, here are some fast facts. Doctor Who and the Deadly Assassin, adapted by Terrence Dix from the script by Robert Holmes, aired from 103076 to 112076, published by Target Books in October 1977. As of this recording in April of 2021, this title is currently out of print, but is available as an unabridged audiobook, 122 pages. Now, as we just said, and has been pointed out elsewhere before, that title seems to be a tautology. Except that Bob Holmes himself said that it wasn't, as not only is an assassin not necessarily deadly among a race of people who can regenerate, as Allison pointed out, there are also plenty of incompetent assassins. It's certainly a better title than the dangerous assassin, which Holmes said didn't sound right. Sure, yeah. That original title might be a clue to one of the two influences for this story. The story and then subsequent film, The Most Dangerous Game, features a man who hunts down the main character for sport, much as Goth does with the Doctor here. But Holmes definitely intended this story to be a take on the Manchurian candidate, featuring a former soldier brainwashed by the Chinese into an assassination attempt. You might also notice there are several digs at America in the story, such as the CIA reference and the vaporization without representation line, as Holmes also took as his inspiration many of the conspiracy theories surrounding the Kennedy assassination. It's also the first time the Doctor has had a story without a companion. This was also intentional, as Tom Baker, much as he loved Liz Sladen and Ian Martyr, believed that he himself was enough to carry the show without another actor. Baker even once half-jokingly said that he should be paired with a sentient cabbage. <laughs> which is hilarious. <laughs> The production team granted his request, not about the sentient cabbage, obviously, <laughs> by planning that this story and perhaps the next few stories would be companionless, with secondary characters taking the traditional companion role for each story, in a similar vein to what happened with David Tennant's season of specials in 2008 to 2009. Holmes actually had planned introducing the next companion at the end of this story with a female urchin-type character that the Doctor would meet during a final battle with the Master in Victorian London. 
Like a homeless child or a sea creature? <laughs> nah, sea creature, you silly thing, you. No, no. He meant something like a um, artful dodger type character. Mm. Yeah, but it would have been female. But while the next companion would retain part of the Henry Higgins, Eliza Doolittle dynamic that he was going for with that, she would be very different, even though she would eventually visit Victorian London with the Doctor by season's end. More on that later, of course. And finally, we get our first major view of Gallifrey, a reimagining of the Time Lords as a decaying and corrupt culture that at the time was very controversial among fans, even though this story is now seen as a classic. In fact, there's a uh, famous review by the head of the Doctor Who Appreciation Society who bemoaned the fact that the Master was so different and that Dudley Simpson's famous Master theme wasn't used, even though it hadn't been used since the Pertwee era. Holmes himself never felt comfortable with the portrayal of the Time Lords as godlike beings. And given the existence of so many renegade Time Lords over the years, including his own creation, the Master, he felt there must be something really wrong with Gallifrey to produce so many bad apples. (laughs) (laughs) And speaking of bad apples, Holmes also took this opportunity to reintroduce the Master as a rotting shell of his former self. The production team wanted to bring the character back as several years had passed since Roger Delgado's death. But since they themselves were already thinking of moving on from the show and working on a new one, they didn't want the next production team to be locked into a version of the character that their successors might not care for. This actually turned out to be quite handy later on, but we can't talk about that just yet. And it's in this story that most of the biggest pieces, the Big Mac Daddies of Time Lord lore are established, such as the existence of Rassilon, the existence of the Eye of Harmony, the different chapters of the Time Lord Academy that are kind of like the houses at Hogwarts, really, the first mention of Artron Energy, and the Twelve Regeneration Limit, which, unlike all of those other elements, that last one has been a little more hotly contested of late. But yeah. So, I just realized something. I don't have a copy of the back cover in front of me. Neither do we. No, because I redacted it. (laughs) I redacted it specifically because I didn't want to give away the big reveal. But tell you what, let me find it real quick. And as I am looking for it real quick, I want to ask you, how much of a surprise was it to either of you that the Master was the villain in this one? Very much. I did not expect it. I, once again, did an audiobook, so I didn't even notice the absence of the back cover because I just saw the cover illustration, which does not elucidate on much story at all. No. I didn't expect him, and honestly, the first scene, other than when the shrouded figure kills one of the guards, the first scene kind of with them in the lair, when Goth, who at the time we don't know is Goth, calls him Master, I even put a note that was like, THE Master? Or is it merely a Master? (laughs) Exactly. It could have just been a character that he called Master, you know, like Igor. Right. So I was like, the master? And and honestly, the way that Terrence Dix kind of just throws that in there and just assumes like it's not a big deal was kind of underwhelming, considering that it's been so long since we've had a story with the master in it. Yeah. It, it felt just nonchalant. Like, oh yeah, by the way, the master's back. Mm-hmm. I wonder how much of that is because of when 
he novelized this, even though I really need to look to see exactly what the books were around it. Maybe he didn't realize just how important this particular thing was, but I will read you the back cover because the back cover would have definitely given it away. This is what the back cover reads. The Doctor is suddenly summoned to Gallifrey, the home of the Time Lords, where his ghastly hallucination of the President's assassination seems to turn into reality. When the Doctor is arrested for the murder, there is a hideous, dark, cowled figure gleefully watching in the shadows. Faced with his old enemy, the Master, Doctor Who approaches defeat in a battle of minds in a nightmare world created by the Master's imagination. But the Master's evil intentions go much further. He has a doomsday plan. It is up to the Doctor to prevent him from destroying Gallifrey and taking over the universe. So yeah, that would have given things away. Completely. <laughs> yeah. The Master is mentioned three times in one paragraph. It's like, yeah, we get it. It's the Master. Well, I'm glad it was an actual surprise to you. Well, and actually quite jarring because my first thought was maybe a little too meta was, no, it can't be the master. The master was killed in a car accident. And it was actually, actually felt, well, like a little too real and actually almost defensive at first. Really? Like, no, you can't have some other master. Roger Delgado is the master and he's no longer with us. So whoever you have, he's not my dad. He's not the real master. And yet we're talking about Doctor Who, where the main character changes all the time. Yes, but all those other doctors hadn't died at this ah, point. I mean, that's I, true. I don't know if any of them had by the time this Cardinal was had, but... But, yes. It was a little different, because when we read the last story that the Master appeared in, you were telling us about how he had actually died. And, I don't know, I was somehow much more aware of the actor having having died than, than I ordinarily would be. I see. So, what was your first impression of it when you didn't know that it was the Master returning? Dalton, what did you think of it? Having seen the cover, I was wondering where this guy got his hands on the Ark of the Covenant to, <laughs> <laughs> to melt his face like that. But then I was also pretty excited to kind of get a first glimpse at Gallifrey to get a little more information about the history of the Time Lords, because having seen all of the current series... I, I know a lot of stuff from that, but seeing the beginnings of it, seeing where a lot of the lore begins was really interesting to me. And I didn't know some of the bits about the different Time Lord houses. I also, even though I've seen all of the new series, did not realize that not all Gallifreyans are Time Lords. Oh, yeah. I did not either. That was a tremendous surprise to me. Really? Yeah. So there were there were some good bits in here that I was actually looking forward to. And again, having that reveal of this kind of ghastly figure being the master, that was just another bit that really brought me into this and made this a kind of exciting read for me. Hmm. Okay. And Alice, what was your first impression when you got it? Well, it's another good Dix prologue, and I've enjoyed the stories that we have read so far about the Doctor being hauled in before the Time Lords for them to give him the business. 
in most instances. This is a bit different because he thinks he's being called by them and it turns out to be a different situation. But the line that struck me most from that is both humorous and insightful from that prologue is before he left, uh, the endless accumulation of secondhand knowledge that would never be used and how he tired of that. And I sort of thought of this as, oh, he took a gap year. It's gone on for hundreds of years. (laughs) (laughs) Went out to kind of, you know, work, see the world, travel, develop an appetite for that education again. So I actually thought it was going to be more like Scratchman's framing device. Oh. Or more more like how you know, we went from Troughton to Pertwee and you know, the doctor sort of, you know, fell to earth and it was trapped there for a while. So that that's mm-hmm. the kind of story I anticipated. I see. Well you can see now, having read this, where it's really odd to try to put Scratchman into continuity because that would technically put it before the story and it just does not work before the story and as we'll find out it really doesn't work after Scratchman owes a lot of its dna to this story this interpretation of gallifrey this interpretation of the time lords is what is going to shape every version of the time lords including in the new series because oh my god the new series time lords are the time lords from this story except for the fact that they have become bloodthirsty and martial that's what's happened they were reasonably this has been a couple of or three years now but i thought i remember them being reasonably militant when they transfigured the doctor from trotton to pertwee and sent him to earth Maybe I'm wrong. I'm glad you brought that up because something that I got recently as a birthday present to myself is a book put out by the BBC called the Target Storybook. And it was published a couple years back. And it includes a short story in Target form, including an illustration for each story of each of the 13 Doctors, including the Jodie Whittaker incarnation. It also happens to be the last bit of Doctor Who fiction that Terrence Dix wrote before his death. His story specifically is about the second Doctor being sent on a mission by the Time Lords between his trial and before his exile. And in that story, and I'm going to give this away, in that story it's revealed that they erase his memory every time they send him on a mission. So every time they send him on a mission, he thinks it's the first one, Hmm. which is just fascinating. And it fits right into that whole season 6B theory that we've talked about for years now, which Robert Holmes himself, the original author of this story, came up with that there's no way that the Time Lords would let an asset like the Doctor get away from them that easily. They would make use of him as much as they could until it was no longer convenient to do so. And then they would send him to Earth. And it appears that it's the CIA, the Celestial Intervention Agency, who were the ones that did that. Yeah. And that kind of echoes the the whole big reveal in the most recent season with the 13th Doctor as well. Oh, yes. Yes, because it sounds like the CIA has been around a very long time and that they have always used the Doctor in this way. So I think you're right, Dalton, that the reveal that I'm, I'm not sure we should tell Allison about yet, <laughs> that the reveal in that story is that the Doctor has been working for Gallifrey for a very long time, far longer than they themselves actually know. 
But you see the seeds of it in this story, and you see the seeds of Gallifrey and society being old and corrupt and on the verge of collapse constantly, and yet also just being devious and tricky and political, and oh my god, I love this version of it. I absolutely love it. And is this a version that we'll see from here on out where Gallifrey is not an entirely Time Lord society, where that's just it seems like a relatively small fraction of the population and then within the time lords they're extremely political and hierarchical oh god yeah yeah the time lords are always established from this point forward as the ruling class of the planet but there is a line that spandrel who i think is one of the greatest characters ever by the way he's easily one of my favorite one-off characters in the whole series spandrel when the doctor has him try out the staser rifle and try to shoot out a, a light globe and Spandrel says this is the sort of thing we run vandals in for. In the actual story, he says... Shibogans is the name of the indigenous species on Gallifrey. Time Lords are not that, if that makes sense. They've been given the 12 regenerations. They themselves live for long periods of time. And they have gone through the Academy, and they have all the things that Time Lords have. Dalton, you probably remember the episode where the Twelfth Doctor goes back to Gallifrey. The first time he goes back to Gallifrey, in fact, and he's sitting with a group of people and he's eating lunch, and they just seem like these nomadic people who are out in the desert. That's the indigenous population of Gallifrey. That's where the Doctor's from. He is not from a noble house. He's kind of a low-born Gallifreyan who made good. Except he also did make good, as we find out. <laughs> so is Time Lord a species or a social class? It's a social class. Okay, I thought they were indicating that only some of the population of the planet was made up of Time Lords, but Time Lords were a different... Uh, or, or just a, what's the uh, Star Wars prequel everyone hates so much? Oh, oh. Oh, just totally different species on the same planet is what they were implying, I thought. Yeah. Do they just have a lot of metachlorians in their systems? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's kind of that, really, because oh, okay. it's established essentially that not so much here, because we're having to paint in broad strokes from what Dix has given us here, though I will say this, Dix has filled in a lot of gaps in this novelization that are in the story. So he's done a lot of legwork in filling in those gaps for us, but one of them is specifically that the Time Lords are those Gallifreyans who have tested into the Academy and have taken the classes and have gone through, and at some point in the process somehow are imbued with regenerations. And the new series has gone some ways towards explaining how that happened, though that itself is also controversial. So yeah, they're not different species. They all are Gallifreyan, but it's basically all Time Lords are Gallifreyan, at least up to a point, but not all Gallifreyans are Time Lords. Which, of course, brings us back to the whole thing of whether or not Susan was a Time Lord, but I don't even want to revisit that right now. What goes on in this book is far more interesting. What do we think of this reimagining of Gallifrey and the Time Lords in general? I liked the introduction, after all the years of rebellion at heart, he was still a Time Lord. The idea that he is not one of them and will always be one of them. Yeah. I thought that was a good framing. Yeah. And it's 
absolutely true, isn't it? We see that in the new series, too. The new series has taught us that even though he rejected the society of the Time Lords, he still went back and fought for them in the war, and then ended up destroying them all, and then ended up not destroying them at all, <laughs> because this is Doctor <laughs> Who. <laughs> How about you, Dalton? Yeah, I think that this gives them a lot more depth. And it, it allows for us to get more stories out of them. And it, it kind of opens up the universe of Doctor Who to a lot more kind of creativity. It, it allows us to kind of see the Time Lords as being more complex than we're initially led to believe. So I, I really enjoyed it. Yeah, this is the first time we've gotten Time Lords with names. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, apart from Obaga, obviously. It's interesting that in the televised story itself, the word, the name Omega is mentioned exactly once. And here it's referenced a couple of times and we learn some really interesting things about it. I love how Dix has fleshed this out, that if you're reading this book and you're looking back at everything that's happened, it becomes clear that the Doctor got captured during the war games. Most Gallifreyans didn't even know about that trial. He did some secret missions for them. He was exiled. The Omega Crisis happened. Most Gallifreyans do not know that that's what happened. The Doctor was never given credit for it. He was simply allowed to no longer be in exile on Earth. And nobody knows who he is even on his own home planet at this point anyway, which is just fascinating to me. I love how this story almost acts as if all of that previous history with the Time Lords and the Doctor never happened. Well, and the last story that we saw with them didn't happen. Like, Scratchmen, that's, you know, a recent story. Like, it basically, as far as the writers were concerned when the episode was written and the adaptation written, that didn't happen. That's true. And it's also true that the Time Lords could have just yanked the Fourth Doctor from that point in his time stream at any time in theirs, but yeah, there are reasons. It definitely feeds into the idea of the Time Lords not only not wanting to interfere in other timelines, but wanting to create kind of a perfect timeline for themselves, or at least a perfect history, a way of kind of brushing things under the rug that aren't necessarily good PR for them and for the Academy. Like the American CIA basically create the best image possible for them. Yes. It was, you know, saving face. Mm -hmm. Exactly. I'm glad you mentioned that because in that same Target storybook, Colin Baker, the Sixth Doctor, also writes a story, and I, I won't go into details, but it's also set on Gallifrey, and it specifically addresses that, the idea that the Time Lords often scrub their own history in order specifically, as even Colin Baker puts it in his story, for public relations purposes. They do not like to be seen by others as less than godlike. In fact, if you think about it, the way they're seen in the war games is the way they want the rest of the universe to see them. The way we see them in this story is the way somebody born there would see them, which is just fantastic to me. It's kind of like the idea that when you're young, you think of your parents as infallible and always right. But then the older you get, the more you get to understand them as people. And you kind of start to understand their reasoning for things. And it gets a lot more gray. Yeah. Instead of things being black and white, it just, it creates more complexity. And you start to see that, 
yeah, the Time Lords aren't perfect, but what they're doing could be for good or could be for bad. And it kind of, depending on the situation, could go either way. Yes. And usually their motivation for doing what they do is for good, all right, but it's for their good. It's not necessarily for the (laughs) universal good. Right. I mean, Genesis of the Daleks, for instance, we now can say that was a CIA mission. It had to be the Celestial Intervention Agency uh, sending the Doctor there to try to basically destroy the Daleks before they even start. And it's the first volley in the Time War. So, yeah, the Time Lords will give all sorts of proper lip service to strict non-intervention, but they are interventionist as hell. They are absolutely in the same way that the American government would have been as of 1976, or even 2021 for that matter. As far as the Master, let's get back to the Master for a second. What did you think of this... It's not exactly a new version, (laughs) because this is the way he always was. It's just he's in a very different state in this story than we've ever seen him before. What do we think of this version of the Master? What I have written down is joylessly evil, which is different. Mm. Like, you can feel it's a different performer, a different actor. Oh, yeah. Uh, Joylessly evil. How do you mean? Well, normally the master is deliciously diabolical and even when he is overcome with hatred and anger there is still a certain je ne sais kill you to it um, (laughs) i can't recall a master who was the entire time this dark with no sort of grim levity Mm. Mm -hmm. there's no humor to him you're absolutely right this master is just out to kill and out to survive, essentially, as we've seen him previously, was always trying to get power. This time he's just trying to stay alive because he's used up all of his regenerations. There's no evil Liberace going on like we often have <laughs> had in the past. Not in the least bit. And that's particularly surprising given that it's being written, the story, by the same man who created the character in the first place. So it is essentially the same character, but who oh God. <laughs> Definite change. No evil Liberace. This time it's Phantom of the Opera. (laughs) (laughs) He's behind the scenes kind of pulling strings and making things happen, relying on his keen hypnotic skills to bring in one of the the more powerful Time Lords to his scheme. I'm still kind of wondering, how did he get Goth to think that his plan was a good plan? Well, here's the thing. It's peppered throughout the book, these references to the Doctor's chapter of the Academy, the Prydonians, and how they are seen by others as devious. Goth says we're a little more forward-thinking than most. When I tend to associate the Time Lord chapters with the houses at Hogwarts, I tend to think of the Prydonians as the Slytherin, because they do have that. The Doctor is probably the exception to the rule, because it sounds like most of the Prydonians, the Master was a Prydonian for all we know, there are several other people who appear to be Prydonian. The next time we see any other renegade Time Lord besides the Doctor, not the next time, but the next time after that when we see a villain, they're going to be one of the other houses. But it's a rarity. The Prydonians have this reputation for being devious and deceitful and full of cunning. And Goth is, by his own admission, one of the more ambitious 
of the Prydonians to the point that the president was going to not name him as his successor, even though everybody in Time Lord society thought that he was going to be the successor because of that ambition. So I think it's exactly that, that Gotham meets the Master, and they're not too far away from each other in terms of worldview to begin with. And there might be a little bit of hypnotic suggestion going there too, but I think Goth is just that power-hungry, and he wants that power, and he will do whatever is necessary to do so, including an assassination, and including framing one of the most famous or infamous renegades. Oh, something else that's interesting. The actor who plays Goth, Bernard Horsfall, also played one of the three Time Lords at the Doctor's trial in the War Games. Of the other two actors who played Time Lords, one was one of the Time Lords in the Three Doctors, and the other one ended up playing the Doctor in the stage play Seven Keys to Doomsday in 1976. It's strongly implied in fan lore that those two actors who played those later roles are essentially the same character. So Goth was the presiding Time Lord at the Doctor's trial. That is an interesting little bit of connection. That kind of tells you what sort of person we're talking about, because if the Doctor was exiled to Earth, but then suddenly wasn't, because we find out in the later story that he didn't go straight to Earth, then something was going on. And it's all to do with the corruption. The fact that the Time Lords are so bored that this is what they get up to. They get up to these weird political games because they literally have nothing else to do with those long lives that they have. They cannot recall how their own technology works either, which is interesting for such long lifespans. I love that. I remember uh, when the first of the Marvel Universe Thor movies came out, my friend I went with was very annoyed, he said, by a sci-fi trope in which fantasy societies don't understand their own technology at all. Yeah, and it happens a lot, doesn't it? You do get these fantastical, long-life civilizations, but that's part of the interest of them, that they've gone on for so long that they literally have forgotten how they got the power that they have. So much so that the Time Lords, when they're attacked by Omega from inside the black hole don't realize that their power derives from a fucking black hole. And I'm not sure I can think of what is being referenced in our world because there are technologies that are forgotten, but we're not still using them. This is a technology that's still relevant. There's a power source still being used, but they forget what they're using. And I guess if we had such a power source, we wouldn't remember it because that would be the analogy. But I feel like there's always a reference that I'm missing there, or an, uh, a comment on our world that I'm missing. I think it's more a gloss on the Roman Empire to some degree, towards its end. Because the Time Lords are a decaying, decadent society. They are in the throes of their end. But the Romans didn't forget that they built the aqueducts and how they worked. No, of course not. But... They would have gotten to a point where they really didn't care either. It's not so much forgetting as complacency. You're right that the Time Lords seem to have forgotten that the Eye of Harmony isn't just something mythological. It's a real thing. It's the thing that powers their TARDISes. And in 
all the stories we have after this, you're going to see Time Lords who are much more cognizant of all of this, probably as a result of the story, to be honest. The Time Lords after this are going to know about such things to the point that when they do fight the Daleks in the Time War, they're able to use all of this to their benefit and to the universe's detriment to the point of giving new regenerative cycles to people such as the Master, for instance, or even bringing old Time Lords back to life, such as Rassilon, which is particularly troubling given what we find out about Rassilon later on. Yeah, this is a turning point story. This is that story where the Time Lords have just been trucking along for millennia. That may have been part of the reason why the Doctor left, because he said he was bored and wanted to see the universe. You can kind of see why he'd be bored. Because if you have a race that is so incurious that they don't even understand their own technology anymore, then certainly a magpie mind like the Doctor's would be like, oh, I can do much better out in the universe, and off he goes. Sorry, I'm doing a lot of talking on this one, but... No, 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 we're thinking about what you're saying. This story has always fascinated me, but I have to, I have to admit something, just a spoiler warning for what sort of rating I'm going to give this book. This book fascinates me in that it's not a pedestrian novelization at all because it's not a pedestrian story. There are flaws, and I want us to talk about them, <laughs> but it is a major turning point. If it weren't down to Robert Holmes and Terrence Dix, the Time Lords would not be the Time Lords we know today, and it's all due to stories like this one. That being said... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's let's go through the things we liked first, and then we'll talk about the flaws, because there are flaws. What else did you like about this one? I like that the usual ceremonial guards were at the beginning very excited to have something to do. <laughs> oh, look! There's an intruder! Cool! Let's see what's going on with that. Yes, they're, they're so excited, and yet they're so blundering. They have no idea what the hell they're doing. But, but they're eager and enthusiastic and ready to be of use. Yes, which makes you wonder where Spandrel comes from, because Spandrel seems to be this tough old police detective who's seen it all. Well, it does make you wonder what the lifespan is and what change that Spandrel, this sort of weary, old, wise pragmatist who has seen a lot, and then these younger people, they're not just younger, nothing happens anymore. Yes, Exactly. In fact, something that Trey pointed out last time that we talked about Robert Holmes, one of his earlier careers was as a policeman. So I'm sure he's drawing on that memory of being a policeman and is probably basing Spanderl on some police detective that he may have known. He strikes me a bit like Maigret, the uh, French detective by um, Georges Simenon. He's got that sense to him. He's not Poirot in any way, shape, or form, but he's definitely this gruff old police detective who is not fooled by a lot and has seen it all, and and yet is also willing to be open-minded to new ideas, which makes him kind of the perfect proto-companion for the Doctor in this story. It's a shame we don't see him again. You're way over my head. The only literary French detective I can name is Javert, and I'm insufferably proud of that. So, <laughs> Oh, <laughs> well, that's more literary than uh, Maigret, actually, but yeah. <laughs> I can't name any real but... French detectives either. <laughs> 
Oh, okay. Well, that's fine. But I, I adore Spandrel. I really do. I can't say enough about him. It's such a shame he doesn't return. Well, I think what, what I have written down here is Dick's usual social bureaucratic ballet of high, mid, and low-level functionaries. And he loves to do this kind of character, and he's very good at it, and I feel like this is the zenith of his powers, because Dix almost always has at least one character like this, up to seven, I've counted it in the past. And here he has only the Doctor with no supporting cast whatsoever, and all of his functionaries. And they're delightful and colorful and jostle up against each other in a very, very lifelike way. Yeah, even Angan, <laughs> who you think is just the perfect kind of Dumbledore stand-in or the librarian, what have you, who is ancient and doddering and pedantic, and yet he's also so delightful in so many ways. And he's also played by an actor who was ancient at the time he was playing the role. So that's the thing. They also cast tons of older actors as Time Lords, just to give you the sense that this is an aging society. Speaking of an aging society, the news this week I was seeing that there was a, this is sort of a PR event as much as anything, a, a kind of parade of special built vehicles ferrying ancient Egyptian mummies from one museum to a new museum facility. And they weren't just trucks, they were almost like parade floats with the, the name on the outside of the dead person within, and they were sort of decorated in, in a ancient Egyptian motif. And I thought this would go over really well on Gallifrey from what we read about their museum. <laughs> and uh, I, I liked that they took the uh, antique vehicle straight over. That Hillred was very excited <laughs> about this antique vehicle. Like, oh, we'll take it right over to the museum. I thought that was fun. And so much so that Spandrel doesn't even question it. Obviously, we find out later that Goth does that specifically so that he can get the doctor into the capital so that he can frame him for the murder. But yeah. Someone else says something about Appendix III, 900 years. Now, there was a real president. And now, you know, they're chopping and changing every couple of centuries. <laughs> yes. Every 200 years or so. God, they don't stick around at all, which will become a plot point, believe it or not. That's all I'm going to say. It will be a plot point. Don't you know exactly what I'm talking about? But this will become a plot point at a later point in Gallifrey history. Ugh. I like that the uh, old classmate was, let's see, was it Runcible the Fatuous <laughs> as a title. And then, weren't you expelled or something? Some scandal after graduation? <laughs> and then... I of the disdainful. I suppose you've already had several regenerations, like their prison stints. Or yes. <laughs> or several spouses or something. On screen, he actually says, have you had a facelift? Oh, several. And they refer to <laughs> regenerations as facelifts, which is just hilarious. Of course, that's going to bring up one of the flaws that I want to talk about. But yeah, there you go. Runcible also, it's funny because he's described on the page as this plump guy. He's not plump at all on screen. I'm not quite sure where Dick got this characterization of him, but I guess he figured if somebody was not going to be a Time Lord and was going to go into C-SPAN, he was going to be <laughs> some overweight guy, but... <laughs> I do like the sort of C-SPAN type imagery they have here of like the local news circuit is just a camera trained on this parliamentary or legislative space. And I, I don't know if that was something the BBC was doing at that point, but that was actually a, a perfectly sensible 
if mundane vision of the future. Well, if ever you think about the news coverage that anything like a coronation or a royal wedding gets, that's exactly what Holmes is going for here, even though the last time that had happened, I think, in British history was in the 50s. I'm not absolutely certain. I'm sure one of our listeners will let me know. I was a bit reminded of the uh, South Park episode where they do a uh, spin on the uh, royal wedding, but it's the Canadian royal wedding. Canadians in attendance cannot believe their eyes. Widespread panic. The princess being hoisted away. The little mushroom people of Nova Scotia screaming with horror. The prince is attempting to grab hold of the cube. The Duke and the Duchess of Calgary hiding behind the pews. This is indeed a horrible day for all of Canada, and therefore... And the pudding has just been knocked over. Oh, this does not go with tradition at all. The royal pudding now spilling all over the abbey as the princess is lifted up, up. And she's gone. <laughs> and he is removing the princess's arm, as is the custom. And you get that sense that that's how ceremonial that they've gotten, that nobody watches the public records video at all. Nobody's watching what Runcible is doing, but this is the only way he can keep a foot into Time Lord society because he obviously isn't a high-ranking Time Lord at all. Yeah. It's just as much a part of the ceremony as the ceremony. They've been recording things for so long that Oh yeah, the recording's just what we do. <laughs> yes, exactly. And probably like the BBC, if they need to re-record over something and erase it, that's exactly what they're going to do. <laughs> but knowing the Time Lords, they probably just record it and store it in a vault and never look at it again. Nope. Just like all those dead Time Lords whose minds are in the Matrix. <laughs> I thought something different was going to happen before we go to the Matrix, where I feel like we have a, a lot to cover. The, the Doctor is described as the innocent to the slaughter. And usually the innocent's going to be the slaughter, not the slaughterer. I thought what this whole story was leading up to, until we get to the actual assassination scene, was the Doctor being lured there and then somehow brainwashed or hypnotized or tricked into committing the assassination himself. Mm. And I was actually quite confident that's where we were going. Then were you fooled for just a minute when we got to the end of that chapter where the doctor actually does take up the staser? Yes, it was exactly what I expected to happen. So I, I yeah. guess I'd fool myself in advance. Uh, I have what it was that we have here in the book, an inventive, suspicious mind. I'm going to put that in the, my greeting card line. What an inventive, <laughs> suspicious mind you have. <laughs> On screen, they do that, too. In fact, it's an episode cliffhanger because you don't realize that the doctor is specifically trying to hit the assassin. But it wasn't a surprise. I thought that he was going to be fooled into doing it ah. rather, rather than framed. I thought he actually would do it. I don't think they could have gotten away with that, because if the doctor had even been tricked into pulling the trigger and actually killed somebody, that probably would not have sat well with Mary Whitehouse and her cronies. I don't know who you're talking about. Oh, that's right. Jenny was here last time we talked about Mary Whitehouse. Mary Whitehouse was a woman. <laughs> with cronies. <laughs> Yes. She was part of an association that was essentially a parents viewing association. And they would watch dog television to make sure that television that was appropriate for children was censored or, you know. And Doctor Who came under their particular ire at the beginning of the Hinchcliffe Tom Baker years because of all the violence. We've talked about in previous podcast episodes what scenes and what moments from those previous stories 
got her really riled up. This one in particular got so much attention that it had a knock-on effect on the production for the next season. And I'll tell you what scene it was. In The Matrix, when the Doctor and Goth are fighting, and Goth is holding the Doctor underwater to drown him. That's Cliffhanger. And the director and the producer both thought it was a good idea to do a freeze frame. A freeze frame of the doctor's face under the water as he's being held under to be drowned. This is one of the few times I would agree with Mary Whitehouse that that probably isn't the best image to leave in the mind of a kid Mm. for a week. You did once tell me, uh, summarize the history of Doctor Who is figuring out new ways to traumatize small children. Well, that's Robert Holmes. The very writer of the story thought the Doctor Who was never as good as when it was frightening little kids to death. I tend to agree with that. But there's a difference, and even Tom Baker has said this, there's a difference between fantastical horror and the sort of things to be afraid of that you would never encounter in real life. And things you do encounter in real life. Right, where you can absolutely drown in real life. Yeah, or remember way back in um, the first appearance of the, the Master, for instance. The uh, No, or was it Spearhead from Space? Whichever one it was where the Auton was dressed as a policeman and the Doctor leans forward and pulls off its mask. And that got a lot of negative attention because it's like, please don't make policemen scary to kids. This is not a good thing. These days, of course, we would think about that slightly differently because policemen are scary to everybody. Well, but not based on the idea that they're not actual humans. And if you pull off their faces, you'll find something else underneath. It's still still being afraid of entirely the wrong thing. Please don't try to pull the policeman's face off. It never ends well. Yeah, it never does. But Mary Whitehouse was specifically worried about things such as, well, what if they're playing Doctor Who at home? And one of them decides, hey, you'd be the doctor, I'll be goth, and I'll hold you under the bathwater. That's understandable. That's an understandable concern. So yeah, there there is a place for that sort of frightening of kids in a way that is safe and comfortable and, and, and very cathartic. But there's another sense in which you can go a little too far with it. And yeah, this story kind of does that a little bit. Just them. I'm trying to remember how we got to that point where we're talking about that. <laughs> the, the cliffhanger was the drowning. And a, and a previous cliffhanger was the assassination. You said you didn't think that Mary, what's her name, would countenance even a, a cliffhanger of thinking the doctor had actually shot and killed someone. Even if it was a, an error or a brainwashing or something, he would still be the hero of the show assassinating. Yes, that would have been too much for the moral guardians of the time. That's exactly the point. That if the doctor had even accidentally been responsible for someone's death in that way, it wouldn't have gone over too terribly well. Whereas the way this is set, he's completely framed, but he's also completely innocent of it. 
What else do we like about this before we get into the flaws? Because there are some. Uh, well, we were just touching on The Matrix, and uh, I was feeling a lot of the same feelings as the recent Matrix films, with the whole idea of if you die in The Matrix, you die in real life. If you die in the dream, you wake up in reality. Healthy recovery in next to no time. Ask me what happens if you die in reality. What happens? You die, stupid. That's why it's called reality. The idea that being in the Matrix takes a toll on you physically. They mention that his blood sugar levels um, <laughs> were, were low. That's what jelly babies are for. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, kind of, kind of the idea that there's a space that is created by someone else that you can inhabit. And it's all in your mind, but that also has an effect on your physical being. Yes. And we are going to revisit The Matrix at least once, not it, maybe even twice in the original series and in the new series. <laughs> Boy, are we ever going to go back into it. I fought The Matrix before, denied its reality. I can do it again. Maybe. We know what they say, Doctor. Nothing ventured. Nothing blown. Oh, I'm talking to myself again. It's a good sign. Thanks, Doctor. Still here. Now shut up. I need to concentrate. Oh. All right. Have a blast of this, Matrix. I was interested in reading this and what the pop culture history is of the concept of a Matrix like this, because the first reference to it where I thought, oh, it's like the Matrix, like the, the first film was when someone is actually reading the Matrix, not going through translation, but it's much like the scene of the first film where I, I can't remember the name of the characters reading it and saying, I don't even see the code anymore. I see blonde brunette redhead. A very Something very similar here where someone's just reading the symbols and reading the Matrix. And I thought, well, I don't want to be the modern person who sees the Matrix and everything. And they start explicitly calling it the Matrix. I do not know what the first sort of pop culture instance is of something like this it's not like the astral plane or the psychic plane or another dimension or some other natural or supernaturally occurring altered state or other plane it's digital it's created it's not physical you go there in your mind but specifically engineered by people as a virtual reality and the administrators are mostly in control but within that there can be sort of renegade activity and user created not only user created action but like user created features sometimes and the, the matrix is this most famously but even thinking about like uh, dollhouse which i know has its own controversies i had a, a concept of sort of retiring people to a sort of virtual reality like this where they were kept constantly hyped up on adrenaline for dark purposes but within it they they did have some kind of agency so what's the first instance of a virtual reality like this i have to wonder that myself because one of the big parallels in my mind is the kree supreme intelligence from marvel comics which would have been concurrent with this. The only problem is neither Robert Holmes nor Terrence Dix would have been comics readers. So they wouldn't have known about that. There's an interesting synchronicity 
going on there. But yeah, this had to have come from somewhere. You do have to wonder where Robert Holmes came up with this idea that there's this enormous repository of dead Time Lord memories that is used for predicting events in their own lives, which should be pretty easy to do, given that nothing ever happens to them. <laughs> so that when some renegade element like the Master comes in, he's able to manipulate it so perfectly and so exactly that not only do they not realize they haven't gotten a warning, they don't recognize that an event has actually occurred that they could have prevented. Which I think of as a separate sci-fi concept, this sort of techno-shintoism where you have various wise elders or ancestors who are creating this this intelligence or this advice. I think of that as a separate sci-fi motif from the virtual reality that you can go and participate in. So I thought it was an interesting combination of the two. And I feel like there's some perhaps relatively obscure 60s sci-fi story that's the first to posit this, and I don't know what it is. Maybe Philip K. Dick? It does have some elements in common with Minority Report. But again, I, I'm not sure that either Dix or Holmes would ever have read any Philip K. Dick ever. So I had to wonder about that. But you're right. It's an interesting concept. It's the first time it ever occurs in Doctor Who. Won't be the last, but yeah. I suspect if we, I don't know, had the brains to process sci-fi all day at high speeds, we'd find like some 1950s story first posited this. I'm not sure. Yes, but I'm not sure either of them would have read it. So I, I really have to wonder where that came from. And, and you're right to question that because that appears to be the one element in the story that does not derive from some previous story like The Most Dangerous Game or The Manchurian Candidate. The rest of it seems to derive from other things like the Kennedy assassination and the conspiracy theories surrounding it. Actually, what I've written down is actually what we think of is this is like 1933 or 34. Someone was attempting to assassinate Franklin Roosevelt. And instead, I think they kind of winged Roosevelt, but they killed Anton Cermak, the newly, relatively newly elected, I think maybe two years earlier, mayor of Chicago. And there are conspiracy theories around it. They're probably not accurate, but they're not completely nuts. Uh, but the assassin was executed within like five or six weeks which is not a thing that happens anymore. This made me think of, a very well, we've got to you know, inspire public confidence in the system, so we're going to kill him right quick before we swear the new one in, was not what have I, I would have expected from their highly self-regarding society. But once again, I guess that's something we have seen every time we see the Time Lords, is they think of themselves as very wise, and then they are surprisingly brutal and right quick about it. Oh, yeah. It's, it's like Starfleet. Starfleet always thinks of itself in Star Trek as the arbiters of all that's good and nice and wonderful in the universe. But if they've got to blow up a planet here and there, you know, got to break a few eggs. Yeah, they tend to be the most corrupt of anybody. And when they go corrupt, they really go corrupt. So what else did we like? Well, before we move on from the Matrix, I just want to point out that even in a created realm, the Doctor cannot escape being in a rock quarry. <laughs> yeah. I missed it. Where was it? It's before he stops to get the water. It says, uh, the scene before him blurred and turned to an, into an endless vista of condensers and giant solid state circuits. The doctor knew his brain was perceiving the true nature of the matrix that held it, but the effort was too great. His enemy's reality too well established. The picture faded. 
This time, he was at the bottom of a rock quarry. It was unbearably <laughs> hot. Thank you. Yes. Of course. So, so yes, even in a created environment, the rock quarry makes an appearance. Of course. Because it has to. Because it has to. they did a huge amount of location filming for this one. I, I have to admit, those sequences in The Matrix are the one part of the story that just, for me, slows the whole thing down. Because it's like, oh, God. Why? Why do we have to have this third episode slump where we have essentially just an extended chase sequence? But it wouldn't be a Doctor Who story if you didn't have something like that, right? It couldn't just all be pure story. At least they weren't tunnels or, you know, corridors on a space station. There is that. (laughs) The space station is on an asteroid. It's actually a quarry. Yes. (laughs) I like the exchange here between, I think it's Inga and the Doctor. Now then, Doctor, what about the Master's character? Bad. If you could possibly be a little more specific. All right. Evil, cunning, resourceful, determined. (laughs) Yeah, that idea that every Time Lord has a biograph that talks about everything they've ever done... You'd expect that with a quote-unquote all-knowing, all-seeing race like the Time Lords, but it doesn't seem to work very well for them if they can't use it in a murder trial. You'd think they'd be able to go back and say, oh, well, the Doctor was always going to murder the President. It's like, well, and yeah, and the Doctor at one point says, well, I, I never met the President. Yes, your bio data says that. It's like, really? Th- is it that exact? It's supposed to go into their future like that? I thought it was more of like a profile and then use of key card sort of, well, sort of thing. Like, you know, his grades, his resume. Yeah. Last time he entered the building. It's the Doctor's so. CV. Yeah. yeah. Yes. It's, it's not clear. It's not at all clear. In fact, it seems to veer from one side to the other. Later stories are going to go so far as to reveal that the Matrix not only has a record of what Time Lords have done in the past, but what they do in the future. Which is fascinating, (laughs) because for that same target storybook that I talked about, Colin Baker's story, specifically talks about how the Matrix can see the present future. Which makes all the sense in the world if you've got a time traveler, because the present future would be whatever path that time traveler is on currently. The events that that person does now, or goes through now, would lead to that future. But if they deviate, there'll be a different future. So the present future is whatever the current path will lead that person to. And the Matrix can predict that. Which is interesting, but it's not in this story, obviously. There's so much to unpack here. The fact that we get Barusa for the first time, and we will see Barusa again. Three times, in fact. I adore Barusa. I really do. This is his first appearance, so he's going to be a major important figure. That He doesn't get much to do in this story, except use a line that I have always wished I could use on a student. You've had ample opportunity to ask me questions during your singularly misspent years at the Academy. You failed to avail yourself of the opportunity then, and it is too late now. Good day. <laughs> <laughs> Love to be able to do that to a student of mine. Any of the Spoonerisms, you have hissed my mystery lecture, and you have tasted two worms. <laughs> oh, that's brilliant. Do we want to get into the flaws now? I think you do. Yeah. I think Dalton has seen a couple of them as well. Dalton, what did you see as flaws? I was reading through the notes, and 
it made me think about, yeah, that doesn't make any sense. There are a couple of deaths of, of people that if they're supposed to be Time Lords, they would have a regeneration. They shouldn't die so easily, but they do. <laughs> <laughs> exactly and yeah i was i was expecting much much like the doctor and the master and, and if we're keeping to that kind of continuity that time lords have regenerations that instead of dying they would just regenerate but goth doesn't regenerate and what was the reporter Runcible. yeah Runcible. yeah Ransible doesn't regenerate he gets stabbed in the back and just dies, dies. <laughs> yeah <laughs> Right, and that doesn't make a lot of sense. We're told, obviously, that the Chancellery Guard uses stasers. And it's implied that stasers have the ability to stun, but they can also kill. And they can specifically kill Time Lords, so they can repress the regenerative ability, apparently. Because the President is killed with a staser, and he dies. He doesn't regenerate. The Master's compression device... Obviously, you cannot regenerate once you've been turned into an action mandal. Whereas, Runcible gets stabbed in the back. If he's a contemporary of the Doctor, and the Doctor is 756 at this point, 749, shouldn't Runcible be able to regenerate, given that he's, you know, gone through the Academy? But no, he gets stabbed in the back. I thought it was it maybe implied that the President was towards the end and that he was out of regeneration that once he passed on it would be for good but yes Runcible seemed more sprightly now that makes sense but again we don't get anything in the text to tell us that Runcible we get nothing in the text to tell us why he dies the way he does and for that matter even if he had regenerated the master stabs him in the back so he wouldn't be able to reveal anything about who stabbed him in the back so that death seems to be fairly meaningless goth may have had his regenerative ability suppressed because of the way he dies as well because he's connected to the matrix but we're not given even a line to explain that so neither Holmes nor dix is really all that interested in figuring that out then we get to the whole thing about regenerations now at the time the story came out the idea of having that regenerative cycle end at 12 makes perfect sense there's no reason to think that the doctor at that point who's in his fourth incarnation would ever get to his 12th regeneration that seemed like an impossibly far future to get to now we're on doctor 13 and the only reason we're on doctor 13 is because the doctor has been granted a completely new regenerative cycle completely contradicting everything that's been said in this story and we've since discovered that there may be a very good reason why he's been given a new regenerative cycle because he doesn't need them that's to say because the show keeps getting renewed is what i thought you were going for well that too i mean that's the real world reason isn't it as long as there's a doctor who there's going to be a need to extend that regenerative cycle well beyond but later stories in the classic series do this too we get a later story where a time lord character is offered a completely new regenerative cycle if he cooperates with something and you're like wait a minute i thought they could only do that if 
the Eye of Harmony was used and Gallifrey is destroyed, though it's also implied here that the Master thinks that's what the Eye of Harmony is going to do, and actually, no, it's just going to destroy the planet because it's going to unleash a fucking big black hole and pull all of Gallifrey into it. That's the Master's favorite kind of technology. Ooh, this will make me very powerful. Or destroy a planet, potato, potato. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Come to think of it, it is, really. Why not both? Why not both? Either way, what bliss. I did like, I don't have the the notes here, but the part where it's implied that the master has kind of messed himself up with drugs, that he's done these sort of quick and dirty regenerations that are actually very bad for his health, and that he has greatly shortened his possible life cycle by using his regenerative powers as a disguise mechanism. I thought that was a nice character moment. Yes, and that's another addition by Dix. It's briefly touched on on screen, but Dix actually expands on that by having Bruce to say, well, wait a minute, how can the master be at the end of his regenerative cycle? He's the same age as the doctor here, and they're both relatively young. And yeah, they are the same age, but the master's gone through his regenerations like Pez. Hard living. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it's meant for that, essentially. And we do find out that the master does get enough power from the Eye of Harmony to stay alive, even though he doesn't get enough to regenerate. But that ends up going out the window, too. The rest of it is going to have some staying power. We're going to hear about Rassilon again. We're going to hear more about the Eye of Harmony. In fact, we're going to see the thing twice. Artron Energy gets a single mention here. It becomes a huge plot point in the new series, to the point that we find out that Artron Energy can affect an embryo in utero and can turn it into a Time Lord. And with that innocent slip of a tongue, Tony manages to derail the conversation for the next two minutes. Remember, my job is to be ignorant on the time pass. On the, on the podcast. On the timecast. Yes, there we go. I try to uh, do it with the least of my abilities. And you do it very well, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Turn into a Time Lord in utero. What the hell is a Time Lord anymore? I don't even know. This is this is my frustration with like the last season of Battlestar Galactica. What even is a Cylon anymore? So at first I thought all of the natives of Gallifrey were time lord and they have a hierarchy and they have a training program but i thought time lord was like it's like a homo sapien it's a, it's a, a species and then i thought when i was reading the book that there are different humanoid species that live on gallifrey some are time lords some are not now you're saying the time lords are the ones who went to college but you can also go to college in utero is it a community college is it private public <laughs> Time Lords are essentially those people who are from Gallifrey who have gone through the Academy and at some point or another have been granted the ability to regenerate. Can I do a certificate program or does it have to be a degree? <laughs> I think you could get an associates and only get six regenerations, sure. But everyone looks down on it. Ew, it's the community regeneration. Exactly, yeah. They're the ones that fix TARDISes and do plumbing and all of that. Yeah, that seems to be the distinction. And when I say a child can become a Time Lord in utero, I don't mean a Time Lord in utero. I mean they can get the regenerative ability in utero. The character of River Song has the ability to regenerate. But... <laughs> So the regenerative ability is not something that all the natives of Gallifrey have. No. But they don't get it as a result of education. They get it as a result of Archon energy. 
it's something given to them. Yeah, Artron energy only accumulates in a Time Lord when they travel through time. And Artron energy can also accumulate in humans who travel through time. In the new series, we find out that Rose Tyler, for instance, has a large amount of Artron energy because she's traveled with the Doctor. River Song has the ability to regenerate because she was conceived aboard the TARDIS while Rory and Amy were traveling with the Doctor. So if you get killed for the first time early in your time travels, that is also the last time because you haven't built up enough credits? That's just it. I'm not sure it goes quite that way. I don't think a normal earthbound human could accumulate enough Artron energy to spontaneously have the ability to regenerate. I think the only reason that it happens for River Song is that she begins her life literally aboard the TARDIS. So that might be it. I, they, it's really an inexact thing. It's only in the most recent series that we find out for absolute certain that Gallifreyans were not able to regenerate before they discovered it. I don't want to go into too much detail about that because I'm, I'm wondering what we should tell Allison about what's been revealed about all of this. It's okay. You don't have to uh, spoil my innocence. Well, the thing is, I don't think we're ever going to read a novelization of a book where this is revealed. So it might be a good idea to just come out with it. A very, very recent 13th Doctor story reveals that the Doctor is not actually Gallifreyan at all. The Doctor comes from some parallel universe. What? Yeah, the Doctor comes from some parallel universe and has always had the ability to regenerate. And they were discovered by the earliest of the Time Lords. I'm, I can't remember the woman's name. I think it's Tectuan or something like that. And she specifically extracted the Doctor's regenerative ability and gave it to all Time Lords. So she essentially was the one who allowed the otherwise mortal Gallifreyans to become Time Lords because they had this regenerative ability. That has two knock-on effects, though. One, it means that this 12 regeneration limit stuff, there's nothing to it. Obviously, those regenerations can be extended. And the Time Lords in this story have forgotten that. Probably because they never knew it. Two... The Doctor has more than 12 regenerations because he, she, they have regenerated for millennia. The First Doctor as we knew the First Doctor is not the First Doctor. Hmm. This, of course, has set fandom into a tizzy because there are some people who think, oh my god, you've completely destroyed 60 plus years of continuity. And you have people like me who love it when you shake shit up and come up with something new who say... Oh, a lot more things make sense, including that scene in Brain of Morbius, where we see those multiple faces of the Doctor before the Hartnell Doctor. It's like, okay, that makes sense now. Right. I mean, I don't love it for the same reason I didn't love the conclusion of the River Song story, where it turns out instead of just being another time traveler, her entire existence is like being his bride in a bottle or something. <laughs> um, you can't get a body like mine in a bottle. Unless you push real hard. Yeah. Well, where she is like this sort of chosen one and was like, I don't want to say conceived to be his lover or something, but like her whole existence is based around the doctor. And I didn't love that. As I have become older, I've become curmudgeonly about stories where it turns out 
that the hero was born to be the hero because of their ancestry. Mm -hmm. And I prefer the ones where the hero became the hero because of what they experienced and what they did in their own lifetime as opposed to some kind of genetic magic. Yeah, I could see that. But I could also appreciate that that's an explanation that explains a lot of things that didn't make sense otherwise. I think the reason you object to it is the same reason why many fans quite rightly object to it, which is it keeps the Doctor from being just another Time Lord, but a special one, to being this literal special being who was destined to always have done this. I'm perfectly fine with that because I think even at this point in Doctor Who's history in 1976, that character has gone beyond being just another Time Lord. But I actually liked in this story the contrast that to all the humans and other non-Time Lords he meets, the Doctor is this extraordinary individual. And then when he goes home, he's the guy who stole a car and got in trouble after graduation. (laughs) (laughs) So I actually like that when he goes home, he is kind of a juvenile delinquent and a miscreant who has managed to do some quite good things, but has also gotten in trouble for doing them out of order. And I, I like that. And here's the thing. Everybody else thinks that about him, too, including the Master. It's part of the reason why when the Master finds out about this lengthy history of the Doctors, he does some very bad things. I don't want to give that away. <laughs> because, yeah. Let's just say modern Doctor Who is pretty interesting. Yeah. Other things that we want to talk about here? Good, bad, ugly? That's some quotes that I liked. I like the reference to the master's evil career. I was amused by the implication that you know he works very steadily. You know he's evil, not lazy, and there's always a demand for his skill set and all kinds of entrepreneurial opportunities. It's a whole career. Said to something. Uh, it said of something. It would require an unprincipled mathematical genius. I think there's also a lot of career opportunity in being one of those. <laughs> and uh, when the doctor is uh, grasping the rifle, he's advised, "I hope you're not planning anything ambitious." It was a nice understatement. <laughs> Oh, and uh, Spandrel giving Hildred a bad time. You've managed to narrow him down to a building that is a mere hundred stories high. I I take it you're trying to confuse him. Yes, (laughs) there's some first-rate bureaucratic bickering among colleagues and uh, among hierarchical respondents in, in this. The line at the end when they're kind of figuring out what to tell the Gallifreyans about all the earthquakes and such. This is still the greatest catastrophe Gallifrey has ever known. What will we tell the people? What can we say? The doctor rose, tilting his hat to a jaunty angle. You'll just have to adjust the truth again, Cardinal. How about, oh, I don't know, subsidence owing to a plague of very large mice? (laughs) (laughs) Yes. And speaking of the Cardinal, it's so they seem to have a structure wherein there's no real distinction between church and state. <laughs> well, it's cardinal in a very different sense, but yeah. Okay, because cardinal, like, more like primary rather than like in a religious sense? Yeah. I, I read him as a religious figure in just based on the title, but you're right, he doesn't do anything especially religious. No, they're not religious, but they are ceremonial, if you get that distinction. Well, that makes sense. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's exactly what it is. In fact, if you look at the terms that they use, Chancellor, for instance, and Castellan, these are all terms that come from medievalism. So Holmes was dipping into that pool and showing just how antediluvian Time Lord society is. It's very medieval to the point that their technology is far behind a lot of the races out there. And it's no wonder that the next time we see them, yeah. And yes, and then the bureaucrats are so offended that their IT system is being insulted. Yes, yeah. it's like, yeah, they're still trying to tout the wonders of BASIC and FORTRAN. And there are places <laughs> out there that are working in Java and HTML and uh, I don't know what else, but yeah. I, I like the a couple of nice visual scenes. One where the doctor sees the, the dead fish just before he's about to drink was especially nicely rendered as a moment. I forget whom has been assigned to basically shoot up and disfigure the, the body of the assassinated oh, president. Yeah, and he finds it quite difficult to do. And that seemed, uh, I guess humanizing might be the wrong word. <laughs> I like to think that if I were assigned for perfectly good reasons to desecrate a body, that it would give me pause. Like that, that actually made sense as a clincher detail of something I've never thought about doing myself before. That, that would seem strange and unnatural. Dix also makes it clear that the master hypnotizes Hildred and keeps him from killing him until he's able to shrink him down. That's something that's actually not as clear on screen. Yes, I thought it was just more beating a dead horse. Like, why would I blast him? He's already dead. He's just lying there. Just an unnatural thing to do. I thought of all the arrogant, unmitigated rubbish had a nice rhythm to it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just a reminder that whenever Terrence Dix is given a Robert Holmes script to adapt, he goes balls to the wall with it. <laughs> Dixon balls. He does his absolute best with it. And here he really has not only brought out some of the best of Robert Holmes's wordplay, he's added significantly to this. But I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit. Speaking of Dixon balls, the last quote I have written down is... The pillar was throbbing with unimaginable power. <laughs> Isn't oh. it always? Yes. Yeah, <laughs> especially during quarantine. <laughs> oh. oh, God. I have no idea. One last little uh, bit that I, I found kind of humorous. Once the TARDIS gets put into the Panopticon and the Doctor gets out and changes clothes from... Uh, a mannequin, the gold usher. And then the very next scene we have is a scene of two uh, high-ranking Time Lords getting ready themselves. And the doctor's hiding and ends up switching clothes with one of them. And the, the Time Lord doesn't even notice. And his friend looks at him and goes, you're not the gold usher. <laughs> just, yeah, just that bit of physical comedy is conveyed really well on the page. Yeah, he's more than willing to bring in all of those touches that were on screen. The only thing he doesn't bring in, and he still makes reference to it, is the doctor doodling during the trial. And in the televised version, you see it's not Tom Baker doing the doodles, but the doctor is doing caricatures of the people speaking at his trial, including Runcible and the old man. And it's just brilliant. There's so much is brilliant about this one. Shall we go to Goodreads? Let us do so. I think so. I think we've covered everything. I think so. 
As we always do, let's go to goodreads.com for online reviews of the book written by other readers and follow up with our own ratings. By the way, if you're listening to this podcast and want to have your review featured when we get to an upcoming book or you simply have a question about it, simply read the book, write a review or comment in our Goodreads group by the deadline so that we have a chance to see it before discussing the book ourselves, you may just get your review read out loud here. The average rating for this book on Goodreads out of 5 stars is 3.79, which is slightly higher than the last one. The reviews from our Goodreads group have again been edited for length, sorry everyone, but do keep them coming. In our Goodreads group, Damon gives his usual very short review, giving the book 3 stars and saying, Good read. The master is at their most mastery. (laughs) (laughs) True. Our Patreon Dave Davis gives it three stars and says there's so much about the story that is good that it would be difficult for Terrence Dix to make any improvements, even though he does. The only one I can think of is the omission of Tom Baker's voiceover at the beginning. There's a voiceover. There's a crawl. It's a Star Wars-type crawl. It's actually quite charming. It isn't awful, but I always thought it a poor fit, and I'm not sorry it's gone. There is one problem with the story that is easier to miss on TV than in the book, probably because prose allows time to reflect. All the characters are Time Lords, several are killed, not one of them regenerates. Of course, most of the dead were killed with Galfrain guns, so maybe they were made to forestall regeneration, but Runcible was stabbed, and from the disdain he shows for the Doctor (laughs) for having regenerated a mere three times, is at or close to the beginning of his regenerative cycle, and yet he's stone dead. This forgetfulness on the part of the original production team is only exacerbated by Dix doing what Hinchcliffe did a few stories ago, and forgetting that the Doctor has two hearts. Yes, at one point he says the Doctor's heart is racing. And even in my notes it said, oh, oh, Terrence, which heart? Which Dix should have been fully aware of since he was script editor when it was established in Spearhead from Space. All that aside, it's not a bad read. Much of the humor is retained, which is no mean feat. And Sarah doesn't faint. Ah. <laughs> None of the companions scream, faint, collapse in anyone's arm, get slapped. Well, Runcible screams and faints, but he's not really a companion. So there you go. And finally, Rocky Sunico gives it four stars and says, I had only read about this episode in other reference material and the state of the master, but it was still completely different to experience it as a full story, even if in book form instead of as a TV serial. But at the same time, I kind of wish that this target adaptation had invested a bit more time to detail things more, since the story was quite gripping all throughout. This is definitely a key Fourth Doctor adventure that has him at his best and pitted against his arch-nemesis in such a unique challenge. It has all the elements of whodunit, even if the Doctor first gets clued into the case with a vision of an event that hasn't even happened yet. The final solution to things was a very Doctor Who one, and the fate of the Master was, of course, somewhat uncertain. But that's just how things are between these two. Overall, this story is a rare one that gives us a better look at Gallifreyan society and introduces a lot of key artifacts that have played larger roles in later Doctor Who stories, and that just makes things even more interesting and memorable. So, Dalton, out of five stars, what would you give this? I'm pretty close to the the Goodreads score. I'd say 3.75. Yeah, there was a lot of good comedy bits. Even though the reveal of the Master was 
a little sudden and underwhelming. I still didn't see it coming from the beginning. So that was a welcome return to see him fighting with the doctor a little bit. I really enjoyed learning more about Gallifrey and society and how their history played out. So yeah, I enjoyed a lot about this. It's not the most exciting book that we've ever read, but I did really enjoy it. So I would say 3.75 for me. Okay, and Allison? I'm going to go three. I enjoyed a, a many of the same things, and I enjoyed it as I read it. I don't know that there's much that really moved me that I will think of later, which I tend to use as a sort of barometer. But then again, I don't know yet what I will think of later, is it's not yet later. Feel free to edit this out. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> I think we will. <laughs> no. No, it had some very enjoyable snappy patter and, and banter. The assassination, the successful assassination of people who should regenerate and don't, or characters who should regenerate and don't, didn't really bother me. But somehow I didn't like having the master back. And it was not just a different actor on screen. It was someone else in the book that felt kind of dark and flat to me. That's why, the only reason I didn't go higher than a three. All right. And as for me, I'm probably going to surprise everybody and give this a four because it is one of my favorite classic series stories, even with that lengthy third episode. It is a surprise to me as a book. I wasn't expecting to enjoy this book nearly so much. In fact, the only part that I even felt like skimming through was the bit in The Matrix. And even there, Terrence Dix manages to add enough to that section to make it worthwhile. He adds things in to show us things that weren't on screen, to explain things that were on screen. And the only reason that I deduct points is for the same reasons that uh, Dalton had, which is why not just give us a little line of dialogue to explain why these otherwise regenerating people don't regenerate? Because we have those lines of explanation where we didn't have them in the televised story. It's kind of like there's a famous early Spider-Man story where he's just straight up hit in the head by a brick. <laughs> and Spider-Man really should sense that coming. Yes. <laughs> Here we just have Time Lord shot and stabbed, and they really should be able to come back from that. Otherwise, this is definitely what a good novelization should be. It adds to an existing story. It probably helps it was such a good story to begin with, but it definitely doesn't hurt that Dix is writing on a Robert Holmes script and therefore is taking a lot more care with it. So, four stars for sure. Well, thank you all. Mm -hmm. And thank you, fellow time travelers, for giving us your valuable time. Next time, we discuss Terrence Dick's novelization of The Face of Evil. Ooh. In the meantime, if you liked what you've heard here, like us on Facebook at Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast, all in order with no spaces. Also, feel free to follow us on Twitter. We're at DWTargetBC, or subscribe to us via the podcast provider of your choice, including Spotify. If all else fails you, and it inevitably will, email me directly at EmperorDollar at gmail.com with Target Book Club in the subject line so I don't ignore it. Thank you very much for listening. Stay safe. Happy Easter for those of you who like Easter and enjoy your travels. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye.